welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford and Woking in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. Let's put our hands together and, and, and welcome Stephen Backhouse. And Stephen, just welcome, nice to see you. Um, just, uh, look at his Bible, this is just ridiculous. You want to be a proper, I've just picked you up as his proper I theologian. Know. You've got comic strips all over the Lord's holy word there. Um, Stephen, just before you speak, because he, he, he and Claire came around to dinner a little while ago, and he told me this story, it was so fun, and it doesn't fit with benign anarchy, but I just want you all to yeah, know about it. You, oh, it does, oh, good. So, Stephen, you, 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 you were in... Um, but, yeah, this. you were in Bethel, and I want to say absolutely clearly now, I want this on the recording. I don't want this removed. Uh, you were in Bethel uh, Church in Redding, California, trying to get your head around all that was going on there. Yeah. And something pretty amazing happened to you in the realm of dentistry. Talk to us about that. Okay, so this is going to be your first introduction to me. Thanks, yeah. Pete. Thanks. <laughs> <coughs> My wife, Claire, wanted to, to go to you've heard of Bethel Church, um, in California, she wanted to go do, she's a nutritional therapist, and she said, I really like the way they do healing and think about healing there, I want to go check that out, so we went for a year, so I'm a professional academic theologian, um, whose job it is, is to be critical of American patriotism, um, I write about nationalism and Christianity, and, and I don't like patriotism very much, and, uh, I had to go to California at the middle of Trumpageddon. Um, and, and it was an interesting experience, you know, to be right there in the heart of it all. And, uh, and my wife took me to, we went to a worship night, and um, uh, worship day, actually. It was, it was my birthday, and I was a visitor at the college. I didn't attend as a student, but I was a visitor. And uh, we had a moment where it was just, there was about 1,000, 1,500 people in the room, and a guy way at the front on stage said, oh, I just have a word for people with uh, fillings in their teeth, for anybody who has fillings in their teeth, I want to pray for dental health, right? So um, my wife jabs me like that, and I'm like, oh, fine, if I'm with the crazy charismatics, I'll do that, and so I stood, and there was about a dozen of us in the room, I guess, and I, you hold your hands open, because that's what you're supposed to do, right? So I stood there, and, and the guy away at the front said, I just pray for um, people with fillings in their teeth, and and then, and then he said, and sometimes God gives gold teeth. And I stood there and I went, no, that doesn't happen. And I uh, ran my tongue over my tooth because I have a stainless steel cap, which I had since I was 15. Um, anyway, uh, later, long story short, at the end of the day, Claire is like, hey, we're brushing our teeth and, at night. And she said, you should check, ha ha. And I checked and... The stainless steel had turned gold. Can we, is it possible to show? I don't have to. Yeah. I can't believe this is the first thing you're making. Here you go. Like, none of you can see, so we're going to pick a random. Who wants, who, who's like, I don't really believe this story? Just someone come up and have a look in his mouth, because we haven't got, it'd be weird to get a camera in there, yeah, even if we could. But who, 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 who here is like, come on then, come, come and have a look. It, okay. This, this, is, this is amazing. All right. I'm going to talk more about this. Yeah, okay. All right, look at that. What do you think? She's getting her camera out. Of <laughs> okay. It is gold. Right. I can verify. Yeah. There's gold. 
really, really properly is. It properly, properly is cold. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Well, no, I just... <laughs> <laughs> um, the, 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 thanks a lot, Pete. <laughs> the point of the gold star, I was not going to talk about that. I don't actually talk about it in public very much because, um, well, it's offensive, isn't it? So, I... What it, what, how do I talk about this? Um, it was a thing that happened to me that my theology couldn't explain and yet was true anyway. Okay? So, it, when I'm in this environment, that's why I began by talking about Trump and all that. When I'm in that environment, I don't actually agree with a lot of the things that were being said from the stage. And I was thinking, how do I live in this environment where I, I intellectually, spiritually, theologically actually don't agree. Um, and how do I, to be in this environment, do I have to believe that white is black and that squares are circle? Is that what I have to do to be here? And the Lord gave me something that um, I wasn't being asked to believe a teaching that I didn't trust. It was an event that happened in my mouth that I couldn't deny, right? And I can't explain it. It's not a doctrine. It's not a teaching. I don't base a teaching on it. That's why I wasn't. I don't talk about this in public. There's no teaching really. Um, there's Ephesians 3:20. God can do all you ask or imagine, and I didn't ask or imagine. Um, I very quickly point out to people that it's not a reward for my faith because I stood there and said, "No, that doesn't happen." Um, and people say, "Well, what about how come you have a gold tooth and I still have a tumor?" I don't know. It's offensive. I, I don't even pretend to get away from the offensive, the potential offensiveness of that. So I, I'm not like, I'm not here to do faith healing, giving everybody gold teeth. That's not what I'm here for. But it is benign anarchy. So that's why I'm going to lead into that. So now we get to talk about what I was here to talk about. But anyway, if you want to talk about gold teeth with me, I'm very happy to do that. Where did my phone go? I had my, where did that go? Did you take it? Pete took my, he stole my phone. <laughs> I'm just going to time myself because, like any uh, academic, if you start them talking, they don't stop. So I need to time myself so I don't use up your goodwill. I, I've been here, uh, I was here on Friday night and I was here on Saturday. And I know there's some people here in the room that, that heard me speak. And so as Pete said, I'm a political theologian. So I'm really interested in like how do politics, uh, not just like, I don't mean voting every five years. I don't mean... Christians, we've got this withered idea of politics that it means, you know, you vote for the red team so the blue team doesn't win, or you vote for the blue team so the red team doesn't win. And we've kind of reduced our idea of politics to that. When we have, like, such a rich heritage, we have a collective vision for society, we have a new way, we, we think we collect power differently than other people, we use it differently, we, the people that the world thinks are important, we don't, and the people that the world thinks are unimportant, we treat with special honor, and... and our whole vision for society as Christ followers is, is highly political, even if you never vote in your life. You just are a political being if you're a Christ follower because you have a, an idea of your vision for what you think the world should be. You have an idea of how you're going to use your money and your power and your time and your body, right? So, so I'm a political theologian, and people always ask, you know, what's the politics of Christianity then? Should I be left-wing or right-wing or capitalist or socialist and all that? 
And I kind of say, do you know, to be really honest, from a political science point of view, the best word to dis on a spectrum, the best type of political imagination for the Christ follower is anarchy. And by that, we don't mean um, throw a brick through a bank window or beat up a policeman. Or like, we're not talking about like angry, you know, skinheads on the street kind of anarchy. We mean, from the political science point of view, that the anarchist is the person who's trying to get... Uh, most hierarchical politics is about gaining power and concentrating it in one place. That's hierarchy. Anarchists organize themselves in such a way as to give power away. And that's called anarchy. Arch archon is the power word hierarchy and anarchy, and it's not chaos. It's organizing ourselves in such a way that we can give it away. It also has to do with holding your institutions lightly. So an anarchist will have institutions. The political anarchists will organize themselves. They will have institutions, but their imagination towards their institutions is they hold them lightly. So they don't have an idea that we must do whatever it takes to keep our institution lurching forward into history. What they'll do is they'll pretty much, you know, quite regularly, they'll stop and say, is our organization fit for purpose? Is it doing what it was meant to do? And if it's not, they'll dismantle it. Which is a kind of an anarchic way of thinking. It's like, we're open to change. We're always going to self-reflect and review, right? And we're going to try and give power away. So, and then I very quickly say it's benign anarchy because Christians always get worried about anarchy. But it's benign, it's not, re it's not malignant, we're not attacking, we're n we are creative, we are loving, we are trying to heal, we are trying to speak truth into situations. And I, you know, the, the silly gold tooth is part of that, right? It's like, you think about the prophetic in, in our Christian ex example, like, a prophet is someone who speaks God's truth into power, all right? Or wherever you find people who think they've got it all sorted in the Bible, you'll find a prophet who comes along and says, you priests, you kings, you think you've got it all sorted. You think everything is set. But the Lord says, or the, I'm here to tell you, and then they speak truth into that power, right? And I feel like that those kind of events for me are like that, that gold tooth. It's kind of the Lord's truth just spoke into it. It's not like I thought I was powerful. I wasn't sitting there intellectually arrogant or anything. I really wasn't. But it was like the Lord said, you think you've got it all set. You think you know how things work, but I'm here to tell you, right? And there's that kind of element of that. And it's, it's destabilizing. And it puts my power and my hierarchy back in its place. It puts the things that I think my identity is rooted in. It didn't destroy. I've come away an even more, you know, keen theologian than ever before. It didn't destroy my theology. It just put it in its place. And I'm so glad that it did, you know. So that's, so that's what anarchists do. They just put, if you think you've got it all sorted, they say, no, let's put it back in its place. Jesus said, Sabbath was made for man, not man for Sabbath. We put this human institution, which is serving a great purpose, we just put it back in its place. So what I want to do is, is um, looking at that, this is why I called it benign anarchy. <laughs> or actually, 
I gave a list of titles to Pete, and he chose Benign Anarchy, so you can blame him. But the other thing I want to say before we look at our story this is um, I am going to teach from the Bible. I'm not teaching from Kierkegaard, I don't think. Um, is the, the, what the word gospel means. So Christians, we, we have an imagination that we've forgotten how political our Christ following is. And a lot of that is because we have, for various reasons, we have individualized and spiritualized, like a private spirituality. We think that being a Jesus follower is just a private act that you have maybe in your mind or maybe in your heart towards this invisible, benign gas in the sky called God. And the early Christian imagination was, there is no invisible gas in the sky called God. There is Jesus Christ. We have touched him and we have felt him and he is God. God has a face. God has an accent. God had bad breath. He was fully God and fully man. If you think, if you're offended by saying God, God farted, you don't know what it means to say God is fully God and Jesus is fully God and fully man. And the early Christians were like, we have touched God. His Jesus Christ has made him known. And it's not just some benign, sentimental gas in the universe anymore. And what is more like the, the, the imagination that they had about who Jesus was. So when the gospel writers were sitting down, and, the, and if you think about it, the, the gospels were written... The earliest one was written maybe around the, the late 60s or the early 70s, the Gospel of Mark. And then the other ones came after. And it makes sense because the eyewitness testimonies, people like the Apostle Peter, they're now old men. They're now dying. And somebody somewhere is saying, oh, man, we better write this stuff down. And, and they gather the, the stories that Peter, the old man, has been telling to the church. And it's interesting that when the Gospel writers like Mark sit down and they think, gee, I wonder what's the best way to describe what it felt like to be around Jesus. They don't reach for the shelf of words marked religion. They actually reach for the shelf marked politics because they say king, kingdom. And they also say a word that we don't think is political, which is gospel. The euangelion, so the original Greek, gospel is euangelion, which means, we all know it means good news, right? But it's not just any old good news. Euangelion means um, the good, it, ha it has to do with like your rightful king. So um, if a prince was born, that would be good news. It's not congratulations, you've got that job that you've always wanted. It's not congratulations, your house sale went through. Like That's good news, but that's not euangelion. Um, if you lived in a city and your, and your enemies came and camped around it and, and besieged you, and then Caesar came and he broke the siege, he would then send his heralds into the city and they would cry, you Galeon, you Galeon, your rightful king has come and broken the siege. So now when you look at Mark 1, in the beginning, the you Galeon of Jesus Christ, the anointed one. In the beginning, the good news that your rightful king has come to break the siege. And the story of Jesus in the Gospels is the story of like, um, he is the rightful king. And he's, he's 
breaking down, I know crazy charismatics, we love to talk about strongholds, right? Well, it's absolutely true. It's a very good word to use. Keep using it. Jesus is marching around the, the, the land, breaking down strongholds and pulling people out of their whatever is binding them and forming new people around him. And the strongholds are often things like the synagogue or the Roman towns he goes to or the family. Whatever group tries to lay claim to your identity, social class, we're going to talk about race in a bit. Whatever group will kind of say, you are now a, this is what people like us do. You're one of us, this is how you act. The story in the Gospels is of Jesus going to each of those spheres of influence, challenging them, showing his authority over them, and then bringing people into formation around him instead. Okay? Your rightful king has broken the siege. And the grateful citizens come out to welcome their king. So let's have a good example here. Remember now, gospel means your rightful king. And benign anarchy means challenging power structures and giving it away. Have a look at Mark 7. If you can get your Bibles out from 24 onwards. Um, I, yeah, so I've got a funny thing because I'm, I'm sort of uh, leading on from talk teaching that we did on Friday and Saturday. So I'm aware that there's some people in the room for whom this is like part of a series that we've been doing. I'm also aware that most people in this room did not come on Friday and Saturday. So I'm also, so now we're doing something new for the first time. Um, now it's interesting. The Jesus calling a woman a dog sounds like and is often used as an example of Jesus being some sort of uneducated or unreformed racist. Oh, look, he couldn't have been that good because he did that. Um, and we now are better than that, okay? Actually, I might even cry during this talk because this is, in, in fact, one of the times when Jesus shows himself to be really good, really benign, really anarchic. So let's look at it. I'm just going to read it. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not and anyone to know yet, because he, uh, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrio-Phoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be let fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in the bed and the demon gone. Okay. Listen, I don't really have like a sermon sermon. I'm just going to teach from this story. <laughs> so, um, I talked about how Jesus, in the Gospel of Mark, we've got a guy. Jesus is going around and he's, he's marching across the land and he's attacking centers of power or centers of influence. And sometimes they're geographical and sometimes like a synagogue or, or something. And sometimes they have more to do with the idea, like the idea of family. So famously, Jesus said, 
He said, your family's outside wanting you to come. And, and Jesus says, who is my family? The people who are listening to me, they are my family, right? So he's, he's showing his authority over the idea of the stronghold of family allegiance. But here, um, he's talking about, this is a story about good old-fashioned racism. You have to remember, remember that the, the chosen people, which means true human, synonymous means true human, the chosen people of God are now living in a land which is dominated by Gentiles, which if you're a chosen person, a true human, the Gentile is a less than human, right? And you live in this land, and you're cheek by jowl, you're jostling, you have Romans above you who have dominated the land, and you have all these different other Gentile groups living right around you and near you, and you're constantly living in a state of uncleanliness, impurity as a result. If you are a chosen person, pretty much you're constantly living in a state where you're going to be made impure because of Gentiles in the land. If you eat with them or if you touch something they've touched, you know, if you talk to the wrong people. So it was a very common phrase to call a Gentile a dog. This was well known. And I'm trying to think of like a, an example, which I, because I don't want to say anything offensive. <laughs> but we can all imagine, we all know various racist phrases for different groups, right? But a, a slightly benign one is, you know, if I was a politician and I stood up and I said, British jobs for British workers. We'd all know that I basically mean white people, right? Jobs for white people. And there's a kind of a coded racism to it. And, and so think about what it feels like for, for a politician to go, British jobs for British workers. Well, imagine what that feels like. So now, along comes a woman who's a Gentile, who has a demon-possessed daughter. So she is as, she's low as, as it can get on the scale. She's impure in all sorts of ways. She's a woman. She's a foreigner. And she's got a demon-possessed daughter. And she comes to Jesus and says, can you help me? And Jesus goes, oh, but don't you know British jobs for British workers? And he adopts a well-known racist phrase. He puts himself in the sphere, in the camp of a typical racist. Somebody that everybody would have expected they know. I and mean, it was the common sense of his age as well. Like He puts himself in that sphere of like, well, I'm a teacher of the law. I'm a chosen person. So, of course... British jobs for British workers, right? There's a tongue-in-cheekness to it. He kind of puts himself in that sphere of racial purity and separateness. And then what happens? What does she do? She says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs get to eat from the table. And what does he do? What's his phrase? Shout it out. Do you remember? Read it. What does he say? For such a, an answer, your daughter is healed. Do you know that in the Gospel of Mark, this is the only time that somebody is commended for their intelligence? Um, another way of, uh, of translating this is for such a clever response. Jesus is like, yeah, you got me. Jesus has just been marching across the land, 
And people have been commended for their faith. People are healed all the time for your faith has healed you. This is the only person, I think, in the whole New Testament where she's commended your intelligence has, has healed you, your daughter, okay? What's going on here? What's going on is Jesus has just lost a public argument. In the society, it's called um, an agonistic society. It has to do with honor, an honor-based system. The majority world, I think, probably still lives this way, right? We don't have it here in, in, in the Anglo-American West. But the honor-based society is an idea that there's never enough, there isn't always more honor. Like if you, it's, it's a limited good. So think of the John the Baptist, right? He says to Jesus, I must decrease so that you must increase. That's, that's an honor society where it's, it's like a sliding scale, right? To give honor to somebody. So if, if I, you know, so when Pete honored the musicians, we didn't think Pete was dishonored because he gave honor to somebody else, okay? But in the first century mindset here of the New Testament, that to me, to honor publicly somebody is to take dishonor on myself. There's not enough honor to go around. Or it's a, it's a, it's a yin-yang. If one person has honor, somebody else has to not have enough, okay? And so Jesus publicly dishonors himself. He takes on dishonor. He commends a less-than-human, demon-possessed person and loses an argument to her, right? He's showing what kind of king he is. He's broken a stronghold. He's attacked the shame-honor culture. He's, well, he's used the shame-honor culture in order to attack good old-fashioned ethnic purity racism. And he's allowed himself to, he took the guise of a racist and he let himself lose the argument. He didn't call her, a, he didn't think she was a dog. He was doing that to show everybody else what kind of king he was. Okay? Um, and there's anarchy in this. This is benign anarchy. <laughs> because he's saying, look, my kingdom is filled with people who you think they're outside. You've got your power structures. You've got your spheres of influence. You know who's, who you're allowed to marry and talk to and eat with. But I'm here to tell you, I can make followers out of anybody. You haven't got it as sorted as you think. Um, so I just want to end with that. Like, I don't have a great kind of flourish at the end. But I do want to just suggest to you um, that the gospel means your rightful king has come. The word faith, Jesus loves belief, right? And he commends people to believe in him. Um, and we see that in other uh, bits of the gospel, he's always commending people for their faith. The word faith isn't about um, wishing hard enough. If you can just wish hard enough, then it will become true. The word, the opposite of faith is not even doubt in the New Testament. It's not, the opposite of faith is not doubt. It's offense. And Je when Jesus uses the word faith, it's the word pistos which is, has more, it feels more like him saying, 
be patriotic to me, have allegiance to me, okay? Because he's a king, and he goes around the land, and he says to people, I've broken the siege. You can come out. Do you want to be seen to be with me? Do you want to affiliate with me? And so I guess I just, I just want to point out that the, the Syrio-Phoenician woman, she's commended for her intelligence and her clever answer, but he shows faith to her. Jesus shows allegiance to her. And it's the faith that saves, and this is where the New Testament talks about not faith in Jesus, sometimes it's the faith of Jesus. It's the allegiance of Jesus which saves us. Just like it's our allegiance to Jesus that brings us life. So if there's somebody here, I mean, you're always in a room of people who are, maybe you're not a Christian yet, or maybe you are, but you're hanging on by your fingertips because you're just like, I can't, I can't talk about the Trinity without committing a heresy. I don't understand gold teeth. I don't know the Bible. I don't believe in miracles. I don't understand Jesus. So I can't have faith. But I just really want to end by saying, like, faith in Jesus is not, I understand you, or I can talk about you intelligently, or I can argue people into the kingdom. Faith in Jesus just means, you're the best person I've ever met, and I want to be seen to be with you. Which is what happened with the woman whose daughter was healed. Jesus is like, I want to be seen to be with you too. For your clever answer, she is healed. I'm just going to leave it there. And uh, I don't even know what the next thing is, but bless you all. Thank you. Thank you.